This message was recorded at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. Through the ministry of The Cove, we're training people in God's Word to win others to Christ. It's our goal to develop Christians who experience God through knowing Him better, knowing His Word, building godly relationships, and helping others know Him. We trust that this message will strengthen your walk with God and help you experience Him right where you are. Okay, we're going to pick back up with the two sendings. Uh, and I think these are, these are really interesting. These are really interesting. Um, so l- l- we're ready to just ju- jump right in. Uh, the, first, the first one is Mark 6. Um, and this comes at the end, or actually it comes in the middle of uh, a cycle. The last thing Bill saw in the Gospel of Mark before he died was what he called the cycle of discipleship, where Jesus chooses disciples, he spends time with them, he sends them out, and they report back to him. And that, it's a cycle that goes over. And I think last year, if you were here, we spent a whole day looking at the cycle of discipleship. And uh, this is step two, where he commissions his disciples to speak his word, not their words, and to do his work, not their work, okay? So uh, this is Mark 6, 6. Um, they went, then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the 12 to him. He sent them out two by two, so everything can be established in the mouth of two witnesses. Plus, practically, you know, it's good for, to, to have a com- traveling companion in this world. It's a dangerous world. Uh, and gave them authority over evil spirits. Uh, and we're going to see when they come back, they sort of revel that they exercise this authority and they, they cast out uh, demons. These were his instructions. Okay, listen closely. These are the instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belt. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, there's one of the keys. They don't have to take all these things because they're staying in homes, and it's all based on Jewish hospitality. If I'm a Jewish person, even if in this world, if you, even if you don't know who I am, if I knock on your door at night and you're Jewish, you've got to let me in and take care of me. I might die. You know, it's a life or death thing. So Bill explained this first sending and the, the fact that they didn't take anything. Of course, they're going to trust. It's trusting God. That's a part of it. But they're also they're, they're dependent on Jew, Jewish hospitality. So wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave. Don't go from house to house like a beggar, right? Stay in one house. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet, which is prophetic activity. It's a prophetic sign that, that, that you've been rejected and that you're rejecting uh, um, uh, the village that's rejected you. And when you, leave, uh, when you leave as a testimony against them, in verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Okay, that's the first sending. Now, here's the second sending. In Luke 22, and I don't know if you've ever been struck by the differences. This is Luke 22:35, 35. And there's a, there's a command in here that's still a mystery to me. Uh, then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? So he's referring back to the first sending, right? Uh, nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, second sending, if you have a purse, take it. And also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. That's the mysterious part. Uh, quick sidebar. 
Uh, I'm 19 years old, studying Bible with, with uh, Dr. Lane. He was in the office of the religion department, get, picking up his mail, and I'm, I'm trying to, bef- you know, be his friend, and you know, I want to be his favorite student, you know. So I'm, you know, wagging my tail like a puppy. And Dr. Lane, uh, Dr. Lane, is there any verse in the Bible you don't understand? And he rolled his eyes, you know. He said, "Well, there's a lot I don't understand." I said, "Well, what bothers you the most?" And I'll never forget, he said, Luke 22, 35, when Jesus tells his disciples to sell their coats and buy a sword, that has always bothered me. So guess what? I spent the rest of my life (laughs) trying to figure that verse out. Okay, so right before he died, because, you know, he moved in with us to die. Right before he died, I was taken in to get his EPO shot. There was this treatment that he got for his multiple myeloma. We're in the car, and I very casually, you know, said, remember... You know, when you mentioned that, uh, that passage that was troubling you, he goes, oh, yeah. I said, I think I have something on that. And this is after years of looking. And, and, uh, and what, what I came up with was um, the first time, there, it's Jewish homes. The second time he's sending them out, they're going to be staying in Gentile inns. And the Gentile world is a dangerous world. And it's a practical thing. Don't, you don't take a sword because you're going to fight people. He, he wouldn't tell them to do that. But if you're seen to have a sword, people are going to leave you alone. I think that's sort of the idea. And so I, you know, I present that idea in as glowing way as I can. And he didn't say anything. And it, I was just wounded. I was so wounded. And the next day I saw him and I said, um, I, I got to tell you, you really hurt my feelings. Because I worked so hard on that, and I was trying to, you know, to impress you, and he got a little smile on his face, and this is this is all I got. He said, "You may have something there." <laughs> okay, back to the story. Uh, but that's what I think. I mean, they're, now they're going out into the Gentile world, right? The, the first time he sends them out, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Jewish homes, Jewish hospitality. They don't need stuff. But now he's sending them out to a wider thing. And again, it's not to fight people with, but um, I think that's, in fact, that, that's the best answer I can come up with. I've heard, I've read commentaries that said, well, the sword is the word. No, no. I mean, the sword is the word. The word is, you know, it, that's a symbol, but he's not going to tell us, nah. I mean, you, you see that, that doesn't work either. Right, right. You're going to buy a Bible. Yeah, no. Yeah, sell your coat. Nah, that's not how it works. Um, so by now, uh, but, but now if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. If you don't have a sword, sell your coat and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you, this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching fulfillment. And listen to this. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. I have no idea what that means. That's enough I don't want to talk about anymore, or that's enough two swords are enough. But a little later on in the garden, when they're surrounded, what did the disciples say? Should we strike with our swords? Because he just told them to buy, buy one if he didn't have one. So, uh, so there's an example. Again, they're, they're twin incidents, and one sort of helps you uh, understand. Well, I don't say understand it, but it, it, one helps you try to understand it. Let's, let's look. This is my favorite one, the two feedings. Uh, and, you, and if you're like me, you just sort of lump the feeding of 5,000, 4,000. Oh, yeah, it's miraculous feeding. There's a big crowd, you know. But no, they're, they're two, they're very different in, in lots of ways. And that's, that's what I want to look at. Okay? So this is Mark, uh, Mark 630. <clears throat> 
Uh, and if you're wondering, the 5,000 happens first, and then the 4,000 happens, uh, I think, in chapter 8. So this is after he sent them out. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done, Jesus' work, and all they had taught, Jesus' word. So they've come back from that, that original sending where he said, don't take anything, right? They've come back. Uh, then, because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat. Now, that's a bookend. Uh, that's, that's repeated in 320. There's, there's, there's stories in between this statement. In 320, it says so many people were coming and going that they didn't have a chance to eat. And then here it says that. So it's a literary device. So, so many people were going, coming and going that they didn't have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they've just been out on mission. They come back, they're all excited, but they're exhausted. And he's sensitive to their needs. And he says, let's go to a quiet place and get some rest. They're going to get away from the crowd. That's the whole idea. Peace and quiet. No people. So they went by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns. Now, you think back of that picture you just saw the Sea of Galilee. If a boat's going across, it's so small, if you're on the shore, you can run around the shore and you'll be there by the time the boat gets there. And that's what happens, okay? And I imagine the crowd grows as, you know, as, 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 it, gets, as it gets along. So, um, so they went to a solitary place, but many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, and I would say, can you give me five minutes, right? Come on. That's, that would be my attitude. Uh, Jesus saw a large crowd, but he had compassion on them. Cum patio, that means to suffer with. He sees that they're hungry and all that sort of stuff, and he feels their, their pain. So he has compassion. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He quotes that uh, in, in another place, too. That's from uh, is, um, Numbers 27, 17, and Ezekiel 34, 5. That's Numbers 17. What are you? Are you over there? Do it again. Okay. Numbers 27, 17, and I think that's Ezekiel. Yeah, Ezekiel. 34, 5. You're so welcome. Um, So he's trying to get away and have a break, and he gets there, and there's 5,000 people, 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So 20, maybe 15, 20,000 people. Um, And one of the things I'm hoping, maybe they'd already done it, and I haven't seen it yet, the chosen. I'm hoping that they'll do the feeding of the 5,000. And if I know those guys, they'll have 5,000 people there. Because one of the things I want in my mind is what does 5,000 people look like? I don't really have an idea about 5,000 people standing in a field. I need that in my head, you know, so when I read this. So I'm sure the chosen guys will do it. Did they do it? Next Next season. Okay, thank you. Oh, really? That's Oh, very cool. Well, I've seen season one, and it cost me so much to watch that. I haven't... Is season two out? Okay. I can't bring myself to watch. I'm just not up to it yet. I mean, in a good way. I just... It cost me so much to watch that first season. Uh, boy, they're doing a... I think they're doing a great job. Yeah. Yeah. I love that guy who plays Jesus. I want to be his friend. <laughs> Hi, this is Mike. We just... Have some coffee and just hang out? Yeah. (laughs) 
Oh, me. Okay, so they, they, they go, they get to the other side, and Jesus saw this large crowd. They're like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so the disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. We need these people out of here, you know. But he answered, you give them something to eat. Okay, there, here's another Bill Lane story. Bill Lane, Bill Lane used to say, write this down. Bill said, you should always work at the level of your own inadequacy. You should always work at the level of your own inadequacy. Bill would say, don't just do what you're good at. Anybody can do that. He said, you should always be right on the edge so that if the Lord doesn't show up to help you, you will fail miserably. Is that not a cool idea? I mean, it's a costly idea, but yeah, always. And that's, that's exactly what this is. He's calling them to work at the level of their own inadequacy, right? Uh, so you give them something to eat, like five, 15, 15 20,000 people, you know. Um, they said to him, uh, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we going to spend that much on bread uh, to give these people something to eat? Um, and there are all kinds of parallels in the, in the Hebrew Bible to this. Uh, Numbers eleven thirteen. 13. Uh, I think that's Elisha's servant who, when, when he feeds, what is it, 500 people or something like that. Um, so how many loaves do you have? He said, go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish, eyewitness detail. This is Peter telling the story. Then Jesus directed to have, them all, to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass, and only Mark gives us that detail. They're in Galilee, it's green. Okay? So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Um, yeah, Psalm 23.1, he causes his people to recline in green pastures. Um, uh, so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. So there's his attitude in prayer. Again, he looks up when he prays. I'm going to start trying that. Uh, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Okay. Now I put this under the category of an unmiraculous miracle. Now Feeding 5,000 people with a couple loaves of bread and two fish, or five loaves of bread and two fish, not too shabby. But my point is, how does he do it? Okay, is it lightning bolts from his fingertips? Huh, what's this? Huh. No, what does he do? He says the blessing. Blessed art thou, eternal God, our Father, King of the universe, who causes bread to come forth from the earth. That's the standard Jewish blessing before a meal. He multiplies the loaves just by blessing them. It's an unmiraculous miracle, you know. Lazarus, come out. You know, no, huh. And I, I think that that speaks, again, of his character. And that's what we're doing this week. We're trying to get in touch with his, his heart and his mind and, and, and how he does his thing. And I think this is an unmiraculous miracle. So he looks up to heaven and he gives thanks. And uh, he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. There are liberal scholars who say this isn't even a miracle because there's no miracle language. They said what Jesus did, they, they shared their bread and other people saw that and they shared theirs too. So they kind of, that's their way of explaining away the miracle. But I don't think that's true at all. But it's, it's true that there's no miracle language. 
but there's no miracle language because that's how Jesus does his thing with those two exceptions, those two exceptional miracles that we looked at in Mark. Remember? If off the, you know. But uh, no, this is how he tends to do his miracles in a very miraculous way. Always points away from himself. Always points to the Father. Okay. So he looks up to heaven, says the blessing, gave them to his disciples to set before the people. They also divided the two fish among them. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 very important, here's an important detail, 12 basketfuls, kofanoi. That's the Greek word, kofanoi. A kofanos is a lunch pail. It's a little wicker creel about this big. You put a string through it and you wear it around your shoulder and you put your lunch in it, okay? They picked up 12 of those after 15,000 people had eaten, okay? This is very important. This is the whole, this is the whole point of the, these two miracles explaining each other. Uh, so they picked up 12 kofinoi uh, of the broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Okay, 12 little lunch pail baskets. How many disciples are there? 12. The miracle behind the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is perfect provision. It's, perf- it's not abundance. It's perfect provision. Uh, the first time I ever went to Israel, we were making a, vi- a video on the life of Jesus. And uh, I was doing it for our daily bread. And um, I knock on the door. And it's Fred Hollis, who's the producer of this, this series that they're doing. And Fred tells me, oh, okay, so or before that, I'm talking to my wife on the phone, and uh, we, we live out in, way out in the country, and our well broke down. We have well water. Uh, we had a very deep well, and uh, she's got two toddlers that are in diapers. Of course, I'm in the Jerusalem Hilton, you know, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> You know, got my seaweed wrap coming, you know, in a couple of hours and then, you know, <laughs> massage and then whatever. Anyway, so my wife calls and the, the well, she's got no water. And, and the bill, the, the, the well, Henry Well Company, which is in Franklin, they came and looked at the well, $1,200 to pull this big pipe and put this beautiful stainless steel well pump on the end of this pipe. Okay. Uh, so she calls me and she's panicked. She said, we don't have $1,200. And I said, all we can do is pray right? So, because uh, they're not paying me to do this video. And so we prayed. I said, Lord, you know, be with Susan. You know, we're asking you, you know, to help us. So as I put the phone in the cradle, there's a knock on the door and it's Fred Hollis. And Fred walks in and he says, you know, you're, you've been here like 10 days and I know we weren't supposed to pay anything, but I've talked to the people and, and we've decided to pay you something. So he hands me a check for $1,200. Yeah, that's, now, now, if he'd handed me a a check for $12 million, I wouldn't be here right now, (laughs) right? I would be morbidly obese sitting in front of a big TV, a big screen TV, channel surfing. And so would you, okay? That would be abundance. That would be abundance, right? No, but it was perfect provision. And I'll I'll cry if if I think about this for very long. But the Lord of the universe knew that there was this girl in Franklin, Tennessee with two toddlers who didn't have water. And he moved a guy in Israel 
to give me, I mean, it's just, that's just, a, it was a God thing. And, and every time I tell that story, you, you've probably got stories like that too, right? Where God perfectly provide. And there's something almost more miraculous about that than an abundant miracle. That God knows exactly, he knew exact to the dollar what we needed. Okay? So that's this miracle. The miracle of the feeding of 5,000 is perfect provision. Okay? Uh, now let's look at the feeding of the 4,000 because it's different. Sure. Right. Um, I don't know who said this. It was a teaching that I heard at one time about this, that the, the breaking of the bread and handing out of the bread to the disciples was done by Jesus. And so that each time the bread was given to the disciples, it always came from Jesus to the disciples. So that was where it was also multiplied at Jesus' hand cool. to the disciples. Do you think that is true? I've, I've never heard that before. That makes sense. But, but the, the text doesn't make that clear. But it's that, that makes sense. Because she said the, the, the way it works is Jesus is breaking the bread and he keeps handing it to the disciples, of course. You know, it's, it gets multiplied that way. But Because uh, I've always wondered about that. But I, I will tell you this. I don't think the people in the crowd even knew that a miracle had happened. They just knew that they got something to eat. Yeah. Okay, the CSB says he kept giving them loaves, and we all know the CSB is the best translation <laughs> ever. Yeah, so say that one more time. Okay, so he... Okay, he blessed and, and kept giving the loaves. Yeah, that's good, that's good. And, and HCSB, we fixed that translation. Now it's now the CSB. Yeah. Doesn't this seem unusual, or have you spent any time considering that this ginormous field and 12 guys go out over a ginormous field to get piddly leftovers that fill 12 little leftovers? Yeah, I, I have thought about that. She just said, you know. Strange activity. Like, go get. Right, pick up. Okay. Well, okay, well, that's, that's Judaism. Uh, the Talmud says, cursed is he who, who wastes the crumbs of food. And so when Jesus, the, the leftovers in Hebrew is called the pia, P-E-A-H, the pia. You collect that and you give it to the slaves. That's what the leftovers are for. And, and I, think I, see, I think I see the point you're making. Here's this huge field with all these people and they, they're scouring to just come up with 12 of these. Yeah, and that, but I think that's the miracle. Yeah, cursed is he who wastes the crumbs of food. And so Jesus says, pick up the pia, and he gives it to the disciples who are servants. So it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. Now let's look at the, the 4,000, okay? And this is Mark 8. Uh, I think we've read this, but I, I think we need to read it again to make sense of it. Um, During those days, another large crowd gathered since they had nothing to eat, Jesus calls his disciples to him and said, I have compassion. So there's kind of a parallel with the other one. He felt compassion. I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. Uh, if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. So it's unthinkable in Jesus' mind to send these people away without caring for them. That's his personality. We've got to do something for these people. And you probably know somebody like that. I do. I'm married, I'm married to a person like that. My, my attitude would be, yeah, they'll grab something along the way. You know, we'll see you guys later, right? Not, not Jesus. His disciples answered, 
but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? So there's the parallel. How many loaves do you have? He asked. Seven. So they got a couple more. He told them, uh, he, he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Uh, no mention of green grass. When he had taken the seven loaves, no mention of fish either, is there? And given thanks, there's the prayer. Um, yeah. Uh, and given thanks, he broke them and gave them. Does, does the CSB say he kept giving them? Okay, the, the superior translation known as the CSB says he kept giving them. Good. Uh, he broke them and kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. Oh, here's the fish. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to, to distribute them. And I have a note that says in the, in the rabbinic world they would bless each course. So he says two blessings each time they, they hand them out here. Uh, the people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketful, but it, the word for basket there is not kofinos, it's spheros. Spheroi is the, is the plural. A spheros is a man-sized basket. When Paul is led over the wall in a basket, it's a spheros. Okay? So 12 little bitty baskets or seven Man-sized baskets. Okay, so the, 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 the miracle of this feeding is abundance. When they pick up the, the leftovers, they got seven big baskets full of leftovers. So I'm saying these are two different miracles. One's perfect provision, one's abundance. Both, you know, both miraculous. Um, so there were seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present, and having uh, sent them away, he got into the boat and went to Dalmanutha. Okay. But here's the interesting thing. In a few verses down, starting verse 17, Jesus recaps these two miracles, and he uses the two different words for baskets. So it reinforces this idea. It starts in verse 17. Aware of their discussion, they're talking about not having any bread. He refers to the yeast of the Pharisees. Yeast in Judaism is a, is a symbol of sin for Passover. You take all the yeast out of the house, that kind of thing. So he's been talking about that. And of course, they don't, they don't understand. The disciples go, uh, they, they discuss with one another, is this because we have no bread? And that had nothing to do with what he was talking about. So, uh, and I think he's a little bit miffed here. Verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked him, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? This is that passage we looked at earlier that related to, the t to healings. Can you barely see like the guy who saw trees walking around, that sort of thing? But here's what he goes on to say. Uh, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And here we go. And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many kofinoi, how many little baskets did you pick up? 12, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many spheroi? Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a longer word than that. I'm not pronouncing it correctly, but it's phiros is the word. Uh, of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. And he, his conclusion is, do you still not understand? They, they've, seen, they've seen perfect provision. If that wasn't enough, they've seen abundant provision. And now they're talking about having no bread. You know, guys, come on. So those, that's an example of, of three uh, twin stories that sort of interpret each other, okay? Does that make sense? Yeah. The uh, liberals would say they all brought their food 
second one, I've been following him for three days. It's unlikely anybody's been carried. That's good. Okay. I'll repeat that. He said the first, the first miracle, yeah, maybe they, they shared their food like the liberals say, but in this story, they've been following him for three days. They don't have any food. So, of course, both times it's, it's miraculous. But, yeah, that's good. That's a good. That you're listening to the detail. Yeah, good. I'll use that later on like I thought of it. <laughs> you know, I was thinking the other day, they've been with him three days. And <laughs> yeah, Bill used to say, if you steal from one person, that's plagiarism. If you steal from a lot of people, that's scholarship. <laughs> okay. Um, Let's talk about, um, yeah, let's talk about the, the Messiahship of Jesus, what people thought, how they responded, how Jesus responded, and uh, the, uh, talk about the Messianic secret. Okay, what time do we stop? 11.35. Okay, good, good. 11.35. What? P.M.? So I have, a, I have a couple of lists that I want to share with you. Um, the first list is very short. It's, it's uh, what people initially thought of Jesus. We're circling around the idea of him being the Messiah and what they thought the Messiah should be and what they thought of him and that sort of thing. Because um, we already looked at what he thought of himself, who he thought he was. Okay. So what people initially thought of Jesus. The woman at the well, what'd she say? She said, I perceive that you're a prophet. Right? That's uh, John 4. Nathaniel... And John 1 says, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. He got blown away because he thought Jesus had seen him praying. Uh, what did the Pharisees and the scribes think of Jesus? They thought he was a blasphemer. Blasphemy they charged him with. Hmm? I don't have a verse for that. Um, the rabbi's disciples initially, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. No, that's, that's actually all I got. I've just got some scribbling that I don't understand at the bottom of that. So uh, the woman thought he was a prophet. He's the son of God, the king of Israel, according to rabbi. But the, uh, the Nathaniel, who called him a rabbi, the scribes called him a blasphemer and actually some other things. Um, so let's look at Jesus' response, people's response to Jesus. And I think I've got this divided up by gospels. I do. And let, let me just read this. I'm not going to give you. I'm not going to give you references. Uh, this is Matthew's gospel. In chapter seven, the crowds are astonished by his teaching. Uh, in eight twenty-seven, after he calms the sea, the disciples are amazed. So astonished, amazed. And uh, when he gets to the other side, uh, the Gadarenes, the people in Gadara, beg him to leave. That's an interesting story. They are, they are afraid of him. And Bill used to say, sometimes Jesus was a disturbing presence and people would ask him to leave. So they ask him to leave. At the, in, uh, that's uh, 834. Uh, after he heals the paralytic in chapter 9, the crowds are awestruck. So astonished, amazed, awestruck. Um, again, in 1531, the crowds are amazed at his healing. When uh, Matthew says something really interesting in 2110, when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the last time, he says the whole city was in an uproar. And a little later in 2233, the crowds are astonished. So astonished, amazed, awestruck, awestruck in an uproar. So that's kind of 
people's responses to Jesus. Uh, that's Matthew. And see what Mark, Mark has, much the same. In Mark 1, the people are amazed at the authority of his teaching. Uh, he doesn't teach like the other, other rabbis teach. How do other rabbis teach? They quote other rabbis. You know, Rabbi Hillel says this, Rabbi Shammai says this, and you show your erudition by how many people you can quote. And it's kind of like that now. John Stott says blah, blah, blah. Walter Brueggemann says blah, blah, blah. That shows you've had an education. Jesus doesn't do that. He just says, he just says what the truth is. So, and people are, are astonished at his authority to do this. That's Mark 1. Uh, again, in 5, the, 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 he calls them the Gerasenes, but the same story, the Gadarenes. They beg Jesus to leave. In 542, when Jesus raises the little girl, uh, Mark says the people are utterly astounded. But uh, in the next chapter, in six, chapter 6, uh, in Nazareth, we, re- we saw that story, I think, yesterday. The people are offended when he starts uh, talking about who he is. In 737, the people are extremely astonished. So they're not just astonished, they're extremely, extremely astonished. In 1032, the disciples are astounded and the people are afraid. So I'm just trying to kind of paint a picture. This is people, their response is, this guy's amazing. He's astounding. At the same time, they're in certain situations. We need you to leave and they're afraid. So there's, you know. Um, In 1237, the crowd is delighted. They listen to him and they're delighted. Okay, that's Mark. Luke it doesn't have so many, he doesn't use so many adjectives uh, that way to describe the crowd. I've just got three. Uh, in 141, uh, John leaps in his mother's womb. I, he gets close to Jesus. He jumps up and down inside of his mother's womb. I have a daughter who's expecting a baby at the end of uh, August, and I'm, I totally get this now. Dad, quick, you know, you know, and this little, it's a little boy. He's jumping up and down. I go, okay, that's Luke 141. Um, in uh, 526, everyone is astounded and filled with awe. And in 1946, all the people are captivated. There's another word. They're captivated. But mainly, Luke used amazed and astonished. Those are his words. I call Luke the gospel of amazement. Okay, finally, in, in, in John, um, in 445, the Galileans welcome him. John lets us know that at one point when he goes to Nazareth, he's he's welcomed. What's John doing? 92% of John is unique. 92% of John isn't in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what he's deliberately doing is supplementing. uh, He knows you know the basic outline of the synoptics. And so he tells you what's new. No birth narratives in John. What does John give us? Incarnation, right? You can see this. No, No Lord's Supper. John leaves the Lord's Supper out. How do you tell the story of Jesus not tell the Lord's Supper? He leaves it out. But he tells about Jesus washing their feet after the Lord's Supper. So you see what he's doing. When you compare the outlines of the two, you can see he's consciously uh, supplementing. So in his version, uh, and they're not conflicting. One time when Jesus went to Galilee, to Nazareth, he was welcomed. But the other time he was mad and they they were going to kill him. Okay. Uh, in 641, the Jews complain, are complaining about him. Uh, in 6, when he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, a lot of the disciples leave. They say, we can't take this anymore, and they don't follow him anymore. In 7-1, the reference to the Jews is that they're in Jerusalem is that they're trying to kill him. Uh, 
And in 7, 5, even John gives a little parenthetical statement. He says, even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. They're, they're mocking him. Anyone who wants to be a famous person doesn't do things in secret. So go to Jerusalem, you know. So they're mocking him. They became followers afterwards. Um, in eight, chapter 8, they pick up stones. That's after, I guess, the woman. Uh, they pick up stones to throw at him. Uh, in 10, the Jews pick up stones to throw at him. <laughs> in 12, they don't believe in him. And in, well, that's 1237, they don't believe in him. In 1242, many believe in him, even some of the rulers. Yeah. Hmm? Just five verses later. Yeah, just five verses later. Yeah. Okay. So that's people's responses to, uh, to Jesus. Now let me give you, and we're, we're going to look at some passages, but let me give you... Uh, um, how, how does Jesus respond to confusion over his identity? And one of the things that, that uh, I think is really important to understand about the, the life of Jesus is the people who most, mostly should have understood who he was didn't understand who he was. And I mean his mother, uh, I mean John the Baptist, who left in his mother's womb. I mean he knew who Jesus was in utero, but later on, he doesn't understand who Jesus is and, and, uh, and Peter. So let me, let's look at uh, some of those and how Jesus responds to their not understanding him. Uh, in, in Matthew 3, at the baptism of Jesus, uh, if anyone should have not been confused, it was John the Baptist. He first recognized Jesus' identity uh, when he was still, you know, uh, fetus or whatever. Jesus is just a zygote at this point, right? He's just a few, Mary has just become pregnant, but John is what, six months ahead or something or nine months ahead. I'm not sure. Yeah, six months ahead. Um, so, uh, he's the first to, uh, to recognize Jesus identity. That's in Luke one. Uh, his mother and, and, uh, Mary are, are cousins. They're relatives. Um, uh, and yet, when Jesus comes to be baptized, John is confused. Uh, you should baptize me. He doesn't understand John's baptism uh, is a new in innovation, a baptism of repentance. Uh, he knows Jesus has nothing to repent of. Why would Jesus want uh, to be baptized? He doesn't understand that Jesus' baptism is a baptism of, of identification. He's identifying with us when he's baptized. He's not confessing sin because he didn't have any sin. He's not being baptized for sin. But John doesn't understand that. Um, John doesn't understand Jesus' baptism. Uh, he's not repenting. He's identifying. And immediately Jesus goes uh, into the wilderness. But the big one is uh, 11, 1 through 11, when John goes to prison. Now, do you think that John ever thought he was going to end his life with his head chopped off and given to a dancing girl? Probably not. That was too, too bizarre. So in, 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 uh, from prison, John sends a couple of his disciples to Jesus. And, and the staggering is one of the most staggering questions in the New Testament. Are you the Messiah or should we look from someone else? Now, is he just ticked off <laughs> or is he really doubting? You know, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure. I think he really doubts. I'm, he, he, he knows he shouldn't be in here. People who follow the Messiah sit at, on thrones on either side of him. We all know that. They don't have their heads chopped off. That's not how it works. Okay. So, um, and, and my point is, uh, Jesus has failed to meet John's expectations. Uh, after all, 
in Luke 14. Jesus came to set the captives free. Uh, John was not expecting someone who would let him remain in prison. Jesus fails to meet everyone's expectations, not because there's anything wrong with Jesus, but because their expectations are wrong. Okay? So how about Peter? Uh, in, 16, uh, in Matthew 16, 13 and following, the Spirit reveals to Peter that Jesus is the Messiah. And very important, that happens before the transfiguration. The transfiguration isn't proof, right? Jesus doesn't do proof. Uh, so Peter makes his confession. But Peter is confused as to the meaning of Messiah because we all know that after they're coming, they're coming down the hill, Jesus begins to explain to them the Messiah must suffer many things and be crucified. And Peter says what? That'll never happen to you. See, Jesus, you don't... I know you're the Messiah and everything, but you, let me explain to you what that means. Yeah, right. And, uh, and Jesus, said, who had blessed him earlier, you know, pronounced this uh, curse. Hmm, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, this may be a stupid question. There are no stupid questions. He's the, no, he's the first one to kind of make the confession. It's, it's confessional. I guess that's why they say that. But no, he's not the first one to realize he's the Messiah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, so, but the question is, how does Jesus respond to their confusion? Um, and here's, my, here's what my little note says. Jesus responds to John's confusion at the baptism with patience. Let it be so. You don't understand it right now, but go on and baptize me and... Let it be so. So his response to John at that point is patience. His uh, later response to John's confusion and doubt uh, when he was in prison is affirmation. And he even he, he, when, when the, John's disciples leave, Jesus talks to the crowd about how great John is. Among those born of women, no one's greater than John. So John doubts him and Jesus affirms John. So he's patient and he affirms uh, Jesus' response to Peter's confusion uh, was correction. I don't think that's a curse, but it's correction. Uh, and he, then he goes on, he corrects him by making clear what following the Messiah means, and it means taking up your cross and laying down your life. And my note says, this is a window into his heart. What should we expect from Jesus when we find ourselves in confusion concerning who he is and what he means? I think we can expect patience, and affirmation, and correction. Um, you're not gonna have, you're gonna have to trust me for now until things become clear. That's his patience. Be encouraged, your value comes from my love for you. That's affirmation. Receive my blessings, but strive all the more to understand who I really am. Uh, that's correction. And finally, be confident in my, re in my return, you will re receive an inheritance. So that's kind of my workup of, uh, of of uh, confusion over his, his uh, and how he deals with confusion. Um, of course, I'm just thinking in that, at one point he does say, how much longer do I have to put up with you? And that's not exactly patient. But we'll just skip that for now. Um, 
Let me get, uh, talk about the messianic secret and then we'll, we'll look at some passages that are involved. 1130 is when we stop. John? Yeah. 1135. Okay. Okay. Okay, here's a, here's a short list of uh, the so-called messianic secret. It, he's not keeping his messiahship a, messiahship a secret. He's keeping the lid on. That's what he's doing. And we'll see it's very clear. But let me give you some of the, and I'll, I will give you some of these references. Uh, in Matthew 17, uh, after the transfiguration, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Uh, and there's no result after that. Okay. In Mark 1 and Luke 5, there's parallel stories. Uh, he cleanses a leper and he says, see that you say nothing to anyone. The result is they don't. And Jesus' ministry is hampered in verse 43. Okay, so he says, don't tell. And that's where we find out why he's telling them don't tell. Because people hear that he's the Messiah and he's covered up with people. So many people are coming and going, they don't have a chance to eat, that kind of thing. Okay, in Mark 5 and Luke 8, at the healing of Jairus' daughters, he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And, and uh, there's no result. Apparently they must have done it. Okay, there's no aftermath that said that there was a problem. In Mark 7, he heals the deaf, deaf man, and he ordered them to tell no one about it. The result, the more he ordered it, the more they proclaimed it. Okay. In, in Mark 8, the blind uh, man at Bethsaida, he says, don't even go into the village, which is a parallel. Don't you know, keep a lid on this thing. And there's no word that there was any problem afterwards. So apparently he did that. He did what Jesus said. I'm assuming that. Um, and we just saw in Mark 8, <coughs> Peter's confession. He strictly warned them to tell no one about him. And apparently they did it because there's no word of there, there being a problem afterwards. And uh, then also after the tri transfiguration in Mark 9, he ordered them not to tell, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man was risen uh, from the dead. And there's no result. Apparently, they must have kept their mouth shut. Um, okay. So let me read you something about uh, Messianic Secret. Um, the Messianic Secret, and I always say the so-called Messianic Secret. Um, is that clear? Right. It wasn't, there wasn't a Messianic secret, but the so-called Messianic secret was an idea championed in Germany uh, by uh, Wilhelm Vader in uh, the 60s. He has, uh, he, it's wrongly been considered a major theme in, in Mark's gospel for some years now. More recently, it's lost some favor, and I'd like to do my part to make it even more so, lose its favor even more so. First, this theme is not at all exclusive to Mark. Matthew gives us uh, three or four examples. Luke provides three examples. Clearly, this was not an invention of Mark. Luke's eyewitnesses have confirmed it as well, that Jesus would tell people not to tell. While it's true and also fascinating that Jesus occasionally charges people to keep secret something he's done, um, greater was wrong. Greater was wrong first to propose. Oh, Vreda. I, I, I must have dictated this in. Uh, so the, the scholar that proposed this was wrong to first uh, to say that this was a literary invention of Mark. Moreover, to try to suggest that Jesus was actually trying to keep his messiahship a secret is absurd. 
Yeah, this is going to be hard to read because I dictated this into my computer, and uh, my computer doesn't understand half of what I'm saying here. By my count, there are 21 miracles in Mark's Gospels. Of these, only six times does Jesus command secrecy. So out of 21 miracles, only six times, don't, he says, don't say. On at least one occasion, he commands someone he's healed to go and spread the news. That's the gathering, the man from Gadara. But he's a Gentile. That's referred to as the Gentile exception. Go into the village and tell him what the Lord has done for you, he says. Let's, I'm going to skip this. You don't need to hear all this. Let's, let's look at, at the examples, um, uh, some examples. This is Mark 1. Mark 1, 40. And remember, this is um, uh, one of those messianic miracles. Was somebody wanting to hear those again so they could write those down, or we get that? Okay, we're done with that. Well, I'll read them one more time if you want me to. Sure? <laughs> There's Google. Okay, I'm teasing you. Okay, this is verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion. This is uh, a wonderful uh, example in Mark. Mark is interested in the emotional life of Jesus. His emotions really swing right here, and it's, it's interesting to see it. So he sees this leper, he smells this leper, and he's filled with compassion and he reaches his hand out and he touches uh, the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus, NIV says sent, but it really a better translation is he drove him away. So he, he sees the man being healed and he goes, now quick, get out of here. He drove him away with a strong warning. Um, See that you tell this to no one. So I think he sees the healing happen, and all of a sudden he goes, oh boy, this is going to be bad. So quick, get out of here, and don't tell anybody. But go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded you um, for their cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely. So what Jesus seemed to be worried about, was he was right. What he was afraid would happen, happened. Uh, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter town openly, but stayed outside in Eremos Tapas, lonely places, wilderness places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So that's, that's the first one. Here's the second one in Mark 5. While Jesus was, this is 535. No, I'm sorry. Yes, 535. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead they said, why bother the teacher anymore? What's the assumption behind that? Well, he can heal her if she's sick, but she's dead, so don't bother him. Uh, ignoring what they said, which Jesus was really good at doing, he told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Okay, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And the, I've heard that these are professional mourners. Okay, uh, He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. So one minute they're wailing and mourning because they're being paid to do that. And when he says something so absurd, they start laughing at him. Uh, Jesus always refers to death as sleep and people never understand it. 
when he says, he says, Lazarus is asleep, I'm going to go wake him up, and they don't understand. Okay, so here's the other place where that happens. Uh, she's not dead, she's asleep. They laugh at him, laugh at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, and this is Mark, so we're going to get to hear Jesus' voice, his Aramaic voice speaking, Talitha kum. When Peter raises, he says, Tabitha, one letter difference in Acts, Tabitha kum. But now to this little girl, Jesus says, Talitha kum, which means little girl, and it also can mean little lamb. Little girl, I say to you, get up. She stood right up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. And here it is. He gave strict orders not to tell or not to let anyone know about this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Wonderful little detail, eyewitness detail. Okay, we got time for one, two more, three more, four more. No, sorry. <laughs> uh, this is uh, Mark 7. You can see how Mark, Mark has more examples of the, this so-called messianic secret. Um, this is Mark seven thirty-one. Uh, we, we act, we've, we've looked at this, so we don't need to look at this. This is where he uh, sticks the guys, his fingers in the man's ears. But the point is, he tells him not to tell anybody about that. He commands secrecy. But that's where, you know, I would have loved to seen, you know, the fourth, the... And the disciples are going, this is not how he usually does this. They're whispering to each other, what's going on? Okay, but we're going to skip that one. Uh, here's the uh, transfiguration. This is Mark 9. Six days, uh, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, there they are again, uh, with him in, uh, up on a high mountain, probably Mount Hermon. It's that mountain I showed you has snow on top of it. It's probably that mountain. Uh, and they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. I think that's kind of Peter's homespun way of describing how white it was, kind of a you know, rural, rural way. And there appeared before him Elijah and Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. Now Luke 9 says they were talking, Luke knows what they were talking about. They were talking about Jesus' exodus. Jesus is talking to Moses about his exodus. That's pretty cool. Uh, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, NIV says, it's good for us to be here. I translate this as a question because he's afraid. I, I say, Rabbi, is it good for us to be here? Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. So there's the, from the text that says he's afraid. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. So they don't need to put up tents. God provides a cloud to cover them up. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And there's God's you know, pronouncement of the sonship of Jesus. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So like they shake their heads and it's all gone. Was this a dream? Are we hallucinating? What just happened? And here it is. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man uh, had risen from the dead. They kept this matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead might mean. 
Can't mean rising from the dead. Nobody does that. What are we talking about? Okay. Okay. Got time for one more? We did, did we do the Mark 5, the healing of the uh, demon-possessed man? We didn't? Okay, let's do that. This, uh, write down Luke 5, 21 and following. That's where Jesus heals the man with leprosy. And he tells him in verse 14 not to tell anyone. But let's go on and do, uh, this is the Gentile exception. Yeah, we haven't done this one. Yeah, this is the Gentile exception. Mark 5, starting in verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. That picture that I just showed you is on the far side, northern tip of the lake. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit uh, came from the tombs to meet him. Now, in, uh, in Judaism, there are four characteristics of demon possession. This is from the Talmud. One, walking abroad at night. That's one sign. The second sign is spending the night on a grave. Well, this guy stays in the tomb, so that's, you got that one. Three, tearing one's clothes. He's naked, so there's that. And then four, destroying what one was given. So my note says he demonstrates all four. This guy is a poster child for demonic possession. He has got all the signs of demonic possession. Bill would say the center of his personality has been taken over by demons. Um, so when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs. This man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. That's another sign of demonic possession, demonic worship. He would cut himself with stones. So, I mean, you've read that a million times, right? But stop and realize the condition of this man's life. I mean, horrific. He's sort of slowly, slowly committing suicide. It's just a, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice. Listen how the, the pronouns change. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus was saying to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion. That's what, four to 6,000, no, two to 6,000 people. The number for a legion changes according to who the emperor was. So if, if, you're, if, you, if you're interested in that. My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. My name, singular, is Legion, for we, plural, are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. This, this gathering, the, 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 the Decapolis was sort of a, 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 there was a lot of demonism. I told you yesterday, the city of Hippos, which is one of the 10 cities, was a city that had been dedicated to demons when the city was established. So it's a very dark, the other side of the lake is the dark side. It's the Gentile, it's the pagan side. Um, so to, to not be sent out of the, out of the area. A large herd of pigs, that shows you it's a Gentile area, right? A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us, plural, among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And they, Gee, that's really weird that Jesus would do what they asked him to do. But I think he tricks them. 
Because look what happens. You want to go in the pigs? Sure, go in the pigs. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. So I think you know, that's kind of the point. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. 2,000 pigs floating on the sea. And what we didn't look at is right before this is the storm on the Sea of Galilee, the demonic storm. And what I think, I think those two sto- these two stories are linked. A lot of times a chapter will break what's really one story. So the demonic storm on the Sea of Galilee and the possession of the gathering demoniac, that's really one story. So what happens? Jesus is on the lake. It's a demonic stor- a storm. Satan intends to kill. He's got them all in the boat. They're going to kill all of them. So Satan's intention was, you know, those pigs that are floating on the lake, he was hoping that would be the disciples that would be floating on the lake by this time. But Jesus has power over this demonic storm. And so now he gets there and there's this demonized man in Gadara and uh, the pigs are floating on the, on the lake and not, uh, not Jesus and, and the disciples. Uh, when they came to Jesus, I, I have no, I can't tell you. I don't know. I don't know how that works. They went some, I'm sure they went somewhere else. They didn't kill them. You know, that's not how it works. But the, but the, 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 the beings that they were possessing were killed. That's the, I think that's the point. Yeah. I, I frankly don't know a lot about demons because I was warned by William Lane. He says, don't get into that. Because it can become a, a, a fascination and it's not a good fascination. So I just know, I know about de- de- demonism, just the, the minimal amount that I need to know. Uh, but I have seen demon possessed people and you don't, we were on the temple Mount one time and we were harassed by a man who was clearly demon possessed. And, um, yeah, it's horrific. Can I just say one more thing? Sure. At the beginning of Mark, when they were recognizing Jesus, they recognized Jesus' authority because he was able to cast out demons. Yes. Which that hadn't been done before. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think there are, there are exorcists. She, she said, they, you know, they recognized Jesus' authority cast out demons. She said that hadn't been done before. Now, I think there are exorcists. There are people that can do it, but, but Jesus will, he can, only he can do an, a, a deaf and dumb spirit, and, and clearly he has a, you know, a, a huge authority that these other people don't have because at one point the disciples even say, we, we found someone who's casting out demons in your name, right? And we told them not to, and Jesus says, well, don't. So, uh, and, and the question is, well, all this... All this demonic activity that's happening. And Dr. Lane would say, well, the the fact that Jesus is coming into the world means that there was this uh, a a large amount of demonic activity, you know, in response to him being there. You know, so um, that's how he explained all of the all of that that was in the in in the Bible. Let me jump on down because we're out of time. Verse 18. Uh, So he he uh, he cast the demons out, the pigs going, they they. uh, they're floating. At this point, they're floating on the lake. Uh, I was told at one point that pigs can't swim because they will cut their own throats with their hooves, but that's not true. I've seen pigs swim, so that commentary, you know, was not true. I actually think I put that in my commentary, so if you read that, I learned that that's not true. Uh, verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who'd been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus does not accept volunteers. He calls followers. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to go with you. Plus, he's a Gentile. Okay? Jesus did not let him 
but said, go to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he has shown you hesed, mercy. So he went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. And when Jesus and his disciples come back into this area, there are huge crowds waiting to see him. So apparently this guy, you know, did what Jesus told him to do. So we'll, we'll stop right there. Um, we'll stop right there.